0: If you have a Bible with you, would you open to Colossians chapter 3 with me? Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes these words, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're going to look at some very pointed things this morning from your word. They seem very direct, and I believe that's for a purpose. So I pray you'll make all of us listeners. I pray you'll help us find great application from what we're looking at. And I pray, Lord, that you will carve it on our hearts and in our minds that we never forget. I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Two or three years ago, I, I lose track now, two or three years ago, my good friend Jay Denning gave me the Bible that I was just reading out of. He knows that I have a strong affinity for Bibles, different Bibles, and he had stumbled across this one, and he thought I might find it kind of interesting. He was not wrong. In fact, I have it sitting open most days in my office on an ottoman in front of a chair that I sit in a lot when I'm studying for different lessons and messages. The name of the Bible, the the title of the Bible, beyond just the Bible, is the Gospel Transformation Bible. The Gospel Transformation Bible. And man, I have to tell you, the study notes in this thing intrigue me beyond all imagination. They really do. They are as pointed as the passage we just read. The study notes are very direct. This week, while I was studying for this message, I went down to the footnotes, the study notes, and just began reading, and I stumbled across this. Didn't really stumble, it was just right there. The editors write, because our relationship with God has changed through Christ, our relationships with those around us must change for Christ. I want you to listen to that again. Because our relationship with God has changed through Christ, our relationships with those around us must change for Christ.
1: That is really
0: good. That is really good. And that is a summation of the passage that we just read. See how they can boil things down and make it a very direct teaching for us to take everything that we just went through from the Apostle Paul and bring it together in this type of teaching is really powerful. It truly is. And that's why this Bible has captured my attention the way it has and why the study notes have become some of my personal favorites. The Gospel Transformation Study Bible. Now, I want to take a word out of that title and explore it as we get started this morning. The word is transformation. It's a powerful one within Christianity. The word transformation gets used a lot, but it also gets overlooked a lot. So, if you would, put a pen in Colossians chapter 3 and join me in the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 17, this is the Apostle Paul's way of describing transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's transformation. The old is gone. The new has come. Within Christianity, when we use this word transformation that you see up on the screen, a lot of times we tie it to the verse that we just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. But unless you really decide that you're going to explore the idea, the concept of transformation, you probably will never get to the heart of what it really means. So I want to show you a good way of thinking about it outside of Scripture. Here it is. Transformation is simply an extreme, radical change. Now, if we apply that to what the editors of the Gospel Transformation Study Bible were saying, it really boils down to this. We have been changed internally by Jesus. There needs to be an external display of that, it needs to be obvious externally. If internally we have been changed, it ought to be visible. That's really a way of looking at it. It should change everything within us. When we study transformation in Scripture, when we study transformation within Christianity, we will find out that there are at least four different areas of our life that God seeks to transform. I want to show you all four of these this morning with Scripture that will back each one up because I don't want you just to believe me. I want you to believe God's Word. So walk through these with me real quick. Number 1. Jesus transforms our desires. Now I listed some other scripture up for you, but we're just going to take Galatians chapter 5 verse 24 where Paul writes, "And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." God changes our desires the things that are deep within us, the Lord changes those things. That's part of the transformation, which means now we desire the things of heaven, not just the things of this earth. We desire the things of God, not just the things that we want. It changes everything. But God also transforms our minds. This is from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When that happens, that type of transformation happens, we can begin to understand what Jesus means when he says, you may ask for anything in my name and I'll give it to you. It's because our minds have been so transformed and our desires have been so transformed that we're asking for the things that are in accordance with relationship with Him. We're asking things of God that fit in the realm of godly. And so those are the things that the Lord longs to answer for us and provide for us. Until that transformation has happened, there is some confusion within our prayer life. Can I really just ask God for anything and God will give it to me? Lord, I want a million bucks. Lord, I want a new pickup. I want a new house. I want a new shotgun. I want a new horse. I want to add to it anything you want. And then we, we get frustrated because those things don't come our way. But when the transformation of our desires and our mind happens, now we're thinking God thoughts. Now we're longing for godly things. And the Lord is listening The Lord is responding, and we get to see those. Now, here's a a third level of transformation. Jesus transforms our purpose. This is from John chapter 15, verse 16, and I took it from the easy-to-read version. Listen to this. You did not choose me. I chose you, and I gave you this work to go and produce fruit, fruit that will last. When the Lord has transformed our purpose, We begin working for Him. We long to bear fruit, and as John says, fruit that will last. That's actually Jesus saying those words. John just recorded them. We are longing to bear fruit that is eternal, that has an impact, that changes other people's lives as our lives have been changed. That's what happens when the Lord transforms our purpose. Now, those three things seem to be very internal. Our desires, our mind, our purpose. Those seem to reside deep within us. But I want you to watch the fourth thing. It becomes external. Here it is. Jesus transforms our relationships. Those are external. And that is tied closely to the passage that we just read from Colossians chapter 3 and 4. Our relationships get changed. Now, a lot of times we just want to believe that transformation is only internal, but the Bible teaches us in places like Colossians 3 and 4 that now it begins to spill out of us. It becomes external, it becomes visible. And in Colossians chapter 3, the passage that we just read, it seems like the Apostle Paul is firing off a list of things almost like bullet points. Did you catch that? Look again at Colossians chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Four things that come very fast. Each one of them, interestingly, having to do with our homes. The home being the the most important place for all of us. But what you may not realize is that the home is also the very first institution that God created. After the seven days of creation that we read about in Genesis chapter 1, we find out that God created the institution of family, home and family. Do you realize that? It's the first act of creation after creation, Just let that soak in for a second. I'll show it to you if you want to see it. Join me in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. God's created Adam and he's created all the animals and he's looked upon all of creation and he said it is good and in certain portions of it it is very good. He's brought all of the animals before Adam. He said, I I want to find a helper suitable for him. Well, none of the animals were suitable for him. So we read this in verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And God created Eve. And in verse 24 of the same chapter, then God goes on to say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh. And the institution of family was born. It's very important to God. Very important to God. And once we have experienced transformation, once we have experienced the sanctifying work of the Spirit in our lives, our families should reflect that change. So in Colossians chapter 2, we get to see how Paul says it should happen, and he's pretty matter-of-fact about it. Just one, two, three, four. This is the way it should be. Now, it's interesting to me the way Paul writes, and I hope it is for you as well. There is not much explanation for each of those statements, at least not in Colossians chapter 3. If we go to Ephesians chapter 5, we can find a little bit more of a conversation from him about these things that he writes about to the church in Colossae. But for this church, a group of people that he's never going to meet personally, and he's not going to have opportunity personally to develop the idea much deeper, he just sends out these four bullet points and just lets them rest there. Wives, husbands, children, parents, now think about these things. And then he moves on. It may very well be that the Apostle Paul did that because he was familiar through his Jewish faith, with some writing that would further explain these things. And now what we don't know, because we are not familiar through Judaism with the Old Testament, is that what really Paul did was create a map for another passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. That if we don't have the map, the passage in the Old Testament can be very difficult to understand. But with the map... It makes perfect sense. So, we get a map in the New Testament to help us understand a great teaching in the Old Testament. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go back to Psalm 127 and 128. Together, these two Psalms only have 11 verses, but man, oh man, are they ever powerful in the realm of marriage and family? They are really powerful. Now I first stumbled across these 34, 35 years ago before Tina and I were married. Once we knew that we were on a path to get married, we started reading everything that we could possibly read on the subject. We grabbed every book we could find, we grabbed magazine articles, we were trying to absorb as much as we possibly could to help build the foundation that our marriage and our family would sit upon. One of the books that we got a hold of was written by Charles Swindoll, titled Strengthening Your Grip. Swindoll wrote it in 1982. We got married in 1989, and so it wasn't a a long span between those. And we started dating in 1987, so it really was not a long span. Swindoll's book, Strengthening Your Grip, was floating around all the time. And I vividly remember reading about Psalm 127 and 28 from that book at that time. And it helped me understand a great deal about marriage and family. Particularly, marriage. Now let me show them to you. And at first you may say, "I'm not sure where Phil's going." Well, you just hang with me. This is Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone, this is chapter 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Now Solomon wrote those words. A lot of time we attribute the Psalms to David, but David wasn't the only psalmist. And in this particular case, Solomon is the author of these two psalms. Wisest man to ever live. He had a a thousand wives, so he knows some of what he's writing about. He prolifically had children, so he, he has to have some wisdom. And that wisdom came from God, and he wrote these two chapters that we might be able to learn from them. Swindoll, back in 1982, in writing Strengthening Your Grip, said that what we really have in these two psalms are the four seasons of marriage. The four seasons of marriage. Did you catch those? If you didn't, here they are up on the screen. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Stage one. The early years from marriage to the birth of the first child, that's Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. When you read it in light of that, you'll see that he's talking to people that have just gotten together and they are chasing money, they're chasing security, they're working as hard as they possibly can, toiling until late into the night. And Solomon says, don't get it all messed up. You're not seeing this the right way. Sleep is a gift from God. Make sure that you don't ignore that. Slow down and build things the right way, he teaches them. The exuberance of youth had them chasing everything. So Solomon says, push the brakes a little bit. Then he goes into season two, the birth of the children. That's Psalm 127, verses three through five. He talks about the blessing as children begin to come into the family And then stage three, training, loving, disciplining, and ultimately releasing the children. Psalm 128, verses one through three. So there's that third stage, those teenage years until you release your kids and you send them out into the world that you have trained them up for. And then there's stage four, the blessing of going back to just husband and wife. Psalm 128, verses four through six. See what I mean? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. But here's this complicated passage in the Old Testament that even once we see the four stages can still leave us saying, well, how do we accomplish what Solomon is talking about? Because he's saying, if we raise our children right, they will be a blessing to the community we live in. When he calls out Jerusalem, that's what he's saying. There will be peace in Jerusalem if we do this the right way. He goes on to say that when there's peace in our local community, there will be peace in our entire nation. He says, the peace of Israel, or peace be upon Israel at the end of it. So if there is peace in the family, there will be peace in the community. And if there is peace in the community, there will be peace in the nation. That's really what Solomon's teaching. So we find ourselves saying, how do we do that? That's the map. That is the map of Colossians chapter 3 and 4. When we lay that map, those bullet points that Paul just fired off so fast, when we lay those over these two chapters, it begins to make sense. Wives, husbands, children, parents. Just do these things. Don't argue about them. Don't question them. Just do these things, and you will experience this. Interestingly enough, This issue of peace in the community, Jerusalem, peace in the nation, Israel. In 1982, Charles Swindoll published a a whole bunch in this book, Strengthening Your Grip, a whole bunch of statistics about the course, the trajectory that families in the United States of America were on. The experts who put together all of this research said that it would only take 20 years 20 years from 1982, that if we shifted away from the biblical teaching for us to see the disintegration of peace in the cities and peace in the nation. 20 years, if we didn't do it right. 1982, 20 years. 2002 would have been the end of those 20 years. And now we have a 20-year ability to look back to 2002. And let me just ask you if you've paid attention to what is happening in our cities. In Portland, in Seattle, in Atlanta, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in San Francisco. The list just goes on and on and on. The peace of the community, the peace of the cities has disintegrated. And what is the impact then to the nation? See how it works? We moved away from what the Bible said. And now we pay the price. But I appreciated this in 1982, Swindoll would make this statement. If ever there is a need for a nation to strengthen her grip on any one area of need, it is obviously the family. And that is still the case. That is still the case. If we want to change the course that we seem to be on, It will change, not at the national level, not at the community level. It will change by investing in the family. And if we want to invest in the family, all we have to do is follow what the Bible says. And if we want to know where to start, Colossians chapter 3 is a pretty good place. 1, 2, 3, 4. It just starts like that. And stop arguing with it. Stop trying to debate Scripture. If we just do what the Bible says, we'll be there. We will be there. That's the way it all turns around. Appreciate all of this from 1982 as we look at it from the year 2023, and we can look back and see now almost the prophetic teaching that was put in place. But the day ain't over yet. So we invest in the family, and we do what Scripture says. So that's part of this external transformation. It becomes visible within the home. But did you catch as we went through that 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 is not the only thing the Apostle Paul called out? Did you catch that? Let's go back, Colossians chapter 3. The reason that I would ask you twice if you caught that is we tend to overlook this next part. I'm going to pick up verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the reason we overlook that is because it doesn't seem to touch us, but it does. There is great application in this. Let's start with the elephant in the passage, the slavery side of it. It is written to slaves and masters. Bond servants were slaves just like slaves were slaves. The only difference is bond servants entered the relationship willingly. Slaves were conscripted. So there's a difference only within how you got into the relationship. There were 60 million slaves during the time that Paul wrote this passage. 60 million slaves through all of the region. So there's a reason that he pointedly addressed this issue. And you might say if there were 60 million slaves and ostensibly we don't agree with slavery, then why didn't Paul just write to abolish slavery rather than writing to the slaves? Well, there's at least two reasons. Number one, because a number of these people that were enslaved were enslaved by choice. They entered that relationship by choice. Many of them were highly educated very prominent people. They were entrusted with their master's household, even educating their children. They were given great responsibility, and they entered the relationship by choice. So Paul had to address it from that angle. But the second reason has to do with the church. The church was brand new. And if the church had mired itself in trying to change culture from the outside by addressing things like slavery and the fact that it was wrong, Paul would teach in the book of 2 Corinthians to all slaves, whether they were bond servants or conscripted slaves, if they could get their freedom, get it. Freedom mattered. But if the early church had got up on a soapbox and said, slavery is wrong, slavery is wrong, slavery is wrong, They would have been seen as nothing but culturally rebellious, trying to push against the tide of the time and would not have had a voice. So Paul didn't do that. It's a reminder that the church must always keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing was the spreading of the gospel and the transforming power of it. It was not, the main thing was not political statements to try to change the course of a culture... That would happen from small movements like families changing the culture. It would not be from the pulpit speaking out against all of these things that the church might randomly or willy-nilly choose to be right or wrong. So Paul wrote to the slaves and to the masters. He didn't want to change the course of the church, derail the mission and the vision of the church, He wanted to say we have to stay focused and by staying focused we have to speak Jesus and we have to speak transformation through Jesus so slaves obey your earthly masters masters treat your slaves right that's how he came at it here's the application we may not look at it from the lens of slavery but folks if you're employed there is application if you're an employer There is application. If you are working for someone, then do it the right way, representing Christ. If you have people working for you, then treat them the right way. You treat them in a way that honors the Lord. See the application? Don't skip over it. Don't skip over it believing that it doesn't mean anything to us because we don't battle slavery like this. You pay close attention to it. A lot of it is tied together with a neat bow, starting in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing from the, the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So you always keep that perspective in mind. You always keep that in mind. I'm doing this for the Lord. This is an extension of my faith. This is an extension of who I am in Christ. So I will reflect him externally in the workplace. And now all of a sudden, I have the opportunity to speak Jesus, to share who he is, because I carry with me a different attitude. It's a matter of the heart. I'm going to do this not for men, but for the Lord. I left a store the other day. It wasn't here, it was out of town. And as I was walking out, I don't want to tell you what store it was, it doesn't matter. So I was walking out, two of the employees near the front door were just talking about how excited they were to be done with the day, how frustrated they were at work that day, how things weren't going right, and they just hated their jobs. At the front door, as people are walking by, it's fine have that conversation in the break room. Don't do it at the front door. They were choosing to complain at the front door about their jobs. It's an employer, that's not something you want to hear. Folks, when we choose to fall into those same traps, we're losing some of what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 3 and 4. So we have to be careful of that, remembering that we work as if we are working for the Lord. I want to leave you with two things to bring all this together. One is going to take us back to a passage we've already looked at, and the other is a challenge. Let's go back to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Look at how this starts. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The watchman stays awake in vain. Solomon starts this whole expose on the four stages of family with a unique encouragement. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the walls, it's all pointless. Now, he's using an illustration from the ancient world. In the ancient world, when they would come into a new area and they were going to build a city, or maybe they were coming back to an area that had been embattled and they were going to rebuild a city, the first thing they would do is build the wall around that area and then they would put guards on that wall. Then they would build the houses inside the wall. So Paul's saying here's the deal unless the Lord is building the house, it's all pointless. It is all pointless. Let God be the architect and the builder because anything else is in vain. But he doesn't leave it there. Solomon doesn't leave it there. Solomon says, but you need to make sure that it is God that's on the wall protecting the house and protecting the builders because without it, the attacks are too much. The attacks are too much. So you make sure God is on your wall. And then he goes into this expose of the family We have to apply that ourselves, understanding that if God isn't building our house, the foundation won't be strong enough, the wall won't be strong enough. And if God's not on the wall guarding the city, and here's the way that works, if it isn't the word of God guarding all that is going on, it's all in vain. So just do what the Bible says. Let God and his word guard and guide and let him build the house. Now, here's my challenge to go with that. We have to, on a regular basis, take a look at the transformation that has happened within us because it is easy to get to a certain place in transformation and then go backwards. And then we push back up against it again, and then we go backwards. So there is a place, a healthy place for evaluation. This morning, I want to ask you, I want to encourage you, invite you, if you will, to evaluate four areas of your life. Your desires, your mind, your thoughts, your purpose, and your relationships. And ask yourself, how are you doing in allowing God to transform those things? Is the old gone so that the new has found a home? Or have you gotten close and then slid backwards? Maybe you haven't even started the process. So we have to evaluate all four of them. Our desires, our mind, our purpose, and our relationships. This morning as we close out our service, I want you to know that we have people that will pray with you through that evaluation process. People that will continue praying for you. Maybe you look at some of them now and you know that you need to do some work there. And you need somebody that will pray with you for the strength to do that.